Well, it's great to, to be with you all this morning, and I like to say that whenever we come back to, to Lancaster from, from Camarillo, it's like coming to our, our second home, and we really do love it here. It was great being here a week or so ago for, for leadership conference. We brought a group of about uh, 11 or so from our church down for that. Just had a wonderful time uh, saying hello to folks and said hello and greeted many of, of you as well. You know, it's crazy for me to think uh, six years ago, six years ago, I sat where you sat, you know, in, in, in chapel here as a student at West Coast. And it's crazy looking back at that. And I remember sitting and not really knowing, coming into my senior year, not really knowing uh, what God was, uh, what God would use me to do or what, how God was going to work in my heart and my life and just one step at a time. That's how God does it. That's how God shows you his will. It's never all at once. It's one step at a time by faith. But it has been awesome just to, to see God use me, uh, use someone who, who, like the young lady was just singing about, you know, it's, it's not me, it's God working in and through me. And it's not you, it's God working in and through you. If you'll just be a, if you will just be a willing, faithful servant, you know, it, you'll be amazed at what God will use you to do in the future. I want to encourage you to take, take your Bibles this morning, open up to John chapter 8. John chapter 8. And this morning we're going to take a look at one of my, uh, really one of my, my favorite stories in all of the Bible. It's, it's an incredible story. It gives us a, um, a first-hand glimpse into really the heart of Jesus and who he was and his, his heart of grace and forgiveness and, and compassion. And it's the story of the woman caught in adultery from John chapter 8, verses 1 through 11. Now, believe it or not, this, this story is actually only recorded in one of the Gospels. It's only recorded in John chapter 8, 1 through 11. And, and frankly, to be honest with you, it's, it's a story that modern versions and commentators who give priority to the critical text placed significant doubt upon. I've been preaching through this, the, the Gospel of John in my, uh, in my church and kind of working through different passages and things. And it, it was a stunning. I use a lot of commentaries as part of my, my study uh, on, on a week-to-week basis. And it was, it was incredible to me. One of the commentaries I use a lot, and it's probably one of the more well-known commentaries on John's Gospel. I was going through and coming up to this passage of Scripture, getting ready to preach on it, and it, it literally, it skipped it. It skipped the passage. Didn't even comment on it. There's another one I had... Um, pastor that I, I really respect, and I use some of his materials and things, and he commented on it, but he has this caveat that, well, we were almost certain that John did not write this story. It, it's likely a tradition about Jesus that's probably true and got added in by a scribe or an editor later on. And, and for me, as I'm coming into this and I'm preparing to preach on this passage, it it's kind of, because I, I knew that there was some, you know, there, there was some pushback and some things with critical text, but I never realized that Literally, almost, and with modern commentators and textual critics, it's almost a consensus that this passage of Scripture does not belong in John's Gospel. And, and they, they say that despite the fact that this passage of Scripture is vital to the context of the surrounding verses. Despite the fact that this passage of Scripture, this story about Jesus was received and transmitted and preserved in the church for 2,000 years. And despite the fact that you have early church fathers supporting this passage of Scripture. For men like Passion and Ambrose and Jerome and Augustine. And I mention this just by, by way of introduction before we get into this passage of Scripture, just for a couple of reasons I want to encourage you with. The, f- the first is this. I-, I want you to understand there are real issues at stake when we talk about versions and translations and textual criticism. We're, we're not talking about a word or this. Or we're talking about 12 verses. We are talking about one of the most moving and touching stories about Jesus in the entire Bible. There are real issues at stake when we talk about these kinds of things. And I say this also to encourage you to be readers. If pastors said it once, he said it a thousand times. Readers are readers. 
Let's try that again. Readers are readers. Readers are leaders. And I want to encourage you, you know, because coming into something like that, and, and you will find yourself, maybe if you're a pastor or you're working in a setting or something, where you come across something that, that challenges some things that you have been taught, challenges some things that you have heard, and you say, wow, I never realized that. You say, what do you do? What do you do if you don't have the answer? You read. You read. There's a couple, I've read, I've read a couple of books on this, this issue as we was, I was preparing to, to preach this. And I'm doing my sermon prep, but also reading in accordance with it. And for those who perhaps you'd like to dive a little bit deeper on this passage, uh, there's a good book I'd, I'd recommend. It's called A Fresh Analysis of John 7, 53 through 811. And it defends the authenticity of this past, this crucial passage of scripture, this incredible story about the woman caught in adultery. But once again, I, I say all of this just by way of introduction to say, first off, there are real issues at stakes when it comes to versions and textual criticism. And the two, to encourage you to be a leader by being a reader. Now, we're going to dive into to John chapter 8. And once again, one of my favorite stories in all of Scripture. But in, in order to understand what is happening in John 8 with the woman caught in adultery, you have to understand the setting. You have to understand the context of what is happening in John chapter 8. And in order to understand that, you have to understand what's happening in John chapter 7. In John chapter 7. Now, in, in John 7, Jesus is at one of the three major Jewish festivals throughout the course of the calendar year. And actually, believe it or not, there, there are seven festivals. Uh, and I've got a little graph up here. There are seven festivals throughout the course of the year that the Jews would celebrate. There were four in the spring, and then there were three in the fall. But of these seven, there were three that were like the big ones. And, and these three big ones, all Jewish males were required to travel to, like literally to make the journey to Jerusalem to attend. The big one in the spring was Passover. And then about 50 days after Passover, there was another big one called Pentecost. And then there was a big festival that they were all required to attend in the fall, and it's called the Feast or the Festival of Tabernacles. It was literally like their, their fall festival. And, and, and during this Feast of Tabernacles, this Festival of Tabernacles, they were looking back to and they were remembering and celebrating God's provision when they lived in tabernacles when they lived in tents during the wilderness wanderings and the wilderness journeys. And it was a time of remembrance of God's provision for them when they literally didn't even have a home. And it was also a time for them to pray and to come to God to ask for continued provision in the new year. And they would actually, they, they, would, they would create and they would, uh, they would make these booths, like literally like these temporary dwelling places. And they, throughout the course of this festival that lasted seven days, they would, they would live and they would, they, would, they, would have, they would eat and they would dwell in these, these booths that they would construct as they remembered God's provision in the wilderness and they prayed for God's continued provision into the coming year. And what's interesting is, so Jesus, he makes his way up to the, this, this festival. And at this point in time, you know, Jesus has already kind of really gotten the ire of the religious leaders and authorities. There are already some backdoor conspiracies about wanting to uh, kill Jesus, wanting to execute him. And so Jesus, he makes his way up to Jerusalem for the Festival of Tabernacles, uh, but he kind of goes undercover at first, and he kind of goes uh, kind of maybe like a back-channel way or so. And he doesn't really appear on, on the scene of this major festival until about halfway through the festival. And about halfway through the third or fourth day, Jesus makes his way up to the temple, and he begins to preach and teach in the, taber uh, in, in the temple, uh, temple courtyard there. And as Jesus goes up and he preaches and teaches the religious authorities, the, the Pharisees, they challenge him, and there's kind of a, a back and forth there. And then there's, you know, we don't know exactly what happens, but the scriptures doesn't tell us what happens between the middle of the festival and the end. But something incredibly important happens at the end of the Festival of Tabernacles. And it's found in John chapter 7, verse 37. And this is now, we've jumped forward because most of his teaching that's recorded here is, happens halfway through. And then we jump forward to the end, the last day, probably the seventh day of this seven-day festival. And Jesus, he stands up, and listen to what he says. He says, if any man thirsts, 
let him come to me and drink. You say, well, okay. What's so significant about that? You know, because for us, like, you know, as 21st century Americans, like, okay, well, what, what's the big deal here? But you have to understand that back in the first century, at the Festival of Tabernacles, they had these different ceremonies that they would do throughout the course of the week. And of course, everybody knew it, because if you were a Jew, if you were a Jewish male, you were there and you knew about it. One of the ceremonies that they did was a water-pouring festival. And what would happen is that the high priest would actually take this pitcher, and he'd go down to the pool of Siloam. And they would, they would, get, they would dip this pitcher in the pool of Siloam, and they'd get some water in it. And it would actually be kind of like a processional, and so like the, the people, they would follow, and they'd be singing and dancing on their way back from the pool of the Siloam up to the temple complex, up on the temple mount. And they, they'd make their way up, and they'd make their way actually into uh, to, to the, the area where the altar was at. And the altar, guys, the altar would have been, I mean, it, it would have been above your, the steps up to the altar, and the, the size of the altar would have, would have blown your mind. And what would happen is he would go up the steps to the altar with his pitcher and they would take the, the water from that pitcher and they would pour it in this bowl. And then the, the high priest would pour out the water from that bowl on the altar. And as he was pouring out the water from that bowl onto the altar, it was a time of remembrance of God's provision of water for Israel during the wilderness wanderings. And it was a time where the high priest was coming back and remembering and thanking God for his provision of water, life sustenance in the past, and praying for God to provide water, to provide life, to provide sustenance in the coming year. Because in an agrarian society, if there's no water, there's no life. And it's in the context of that setting that Jesus says on the last day of the festival, if any man's thirsty, if any man wants some water, if anyone wants that which will provide true life, come unto me, you can find it in me. He's calling on people to believe on him for everlasting life. And it's interesting because Jesus makes this claim and he talks about how those who receive it will be not, not containers but channels or conduits of living water. The idea is not that we receive life from Christ and then we keep it to ourselves, but that we then pour it out to others. But when Jesus makes this claim, there's all kinds of reactions at the Festival of Tabernacles. There's the people. And right there, there's some people, some people have some faith in Jesus. They kind of believe in, in him as a prophet or a teacher or something like that, but they stop full, short of believing in the fullness of who he claims to be. Some people, they have full faith in him. Some people have no faith in him. Others have negative faith in him. They believe in him. They believe that he's the devil incarnate. You see all these different reactions to his claim. You also see the reactions of the temple guard as well. And we're, we're kind of cued in and we're given a, a kind of a, 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 a glimpse of a private encounter between the temple guard and the Pharisees. You see, three days or so prior, during the midway point, when Jesus was teaching and he had kind of publicly presented himself, the Pharisees told the temple guard, the, the, the Levites, to go and, and arrest Jesus. And they go and they make their way there and we find out that three days later they hadn't arrested him. And they're coming back and they're talking to the Pharisees and they're like, why haven't you arrested him yet? And they said, well, we've never heard someone talk like this guy. They were stunned by him. And of course, well, the Pharisees didn't like that response because they were repulsed by Jesus, disgusted by him. They hated him. And you see that in their interaction between the Pharisees and the temple guard. But there was one Pharisee who was sympathetic to Jesus, a Pharisee by the name of Nicodemus, who John had introduced us to a few chapters earlier in John chapter 3. And all of this sets the context for understanding what's going to happen with the story of the woman caught in adultery. If you have your Bibles open, we're going to begin looking at John chapter 8, verse 1 this morning. And as we, or John, uh, John 7, 53 this morning. And as we look at this, we're going to see first off this morning the setting. 
So all of these people have all of these different reactions, and then we're told what? And every man went unto his own house. So Jesus makes this claim. It's the last day of the festival. We have all these different reactions. You know what happens afterwards? Everyone goes home. Everyone goes home. Well, but, but Jesus doesn't. Look at John chapter 8, verse 1. But Jesus went unto the Mount of Olives. Although the people had homes to go to, Jesus did not. He went to the Mount of Olives where he would spend the night. And this is a reminder of Jesus' statement in Luke 9, 58, where it says, What foxes have holes, birds of the air they have nests, but the Son of Man hath nowhere to lay his head. And so the people go home. Jesus goes to the Mount of Olives. He spends the night there. And they look, verse number two. And early in the morning, perhaps before the sunrise, early light, he came again into the temple and the people came unto him. Now, I've got a picture of the temple I want to show you guys. I don't think that we truly understand the magnitude of the size of the temple complex on the Temple Mount. Guys, if you were able to go back and, and actually be there and see this, it would blow your mind how big this thing was. So to put this in context, so with, with the Temple Mount, with the platform, you have the actual temple itself, and you've got some of the exterior courtyards and other areas along the side here. But this whole apparatus, so you would kind of come up the stairs to get up into the, the temple complex, the whole temple complex itself was nearly 30 acres. So, so to put that in context, imagine walking up to a complex that is the third the size of this campus. That's how big the temple, it would have, you would have seen it for miles. It would have been breathtaking. And Jesus, he makes his way up to the temple and he's going to teach that morning. And I've got another picture of the area where Jesus is likely teaching that morning. It's an area called the courtyard of the women. You say, well, why is Jesus in an area called the courtyard of, of the women? That's kind of, kind of weird, you know? Well, the reason it's called the courtyard of the women is not because only women were in that courtyard, but it's because that's as far as women were allowed to go into the temple complex, that outer courtyard. And so it was this area where you would have mixed groups and you'd have crowds of people that would be there and people would come and they, and they would teach. And, and this is actually, this is the area, you can kind of see the temple in the background here. And you have this outer courtyard, the, the gates that you would go through to kind of be, get back into the temple complex. And this is kind of the area where Jesus is likely teaching, where this encounter is likely going to happen. It's where the treasury boxes were set around the exterior of the walls, where the widow and her two mites. And to put this into context, to, to give you an idea of how big this courtyard would have been, where Jesus is, this, this, this encounter is happening where Jesus often teaches, imagine the size of this auditorium times two. That's the size of this outer courtyard that Jesus is in and he's likely teaching. Look at verse number, look at, the, look at what it continues on and says. And it says, and he sat down and he taught them. You know what Jesus does? He gets there early in the morning in, in, the, in, the, in the temple uh, courtyard there. You know what he does? He sits down, and he's going to teach. You know, it's, it's funny, too. Some people get all up, up in arms about people sitting down when, when they teach or preach or something, you know. And that's not, that's not my style or my flavor, but it's kind of funny to me because that's how Jesus predominantly would have taught, sitting down. You go back into Matthew chapter, that's how the rabbis taught. Matthew chapter 5, the Sermon on the Mount, the greatest sermon ever given. Jesus gives that sermon from a seated position. You go back into, the, I think, at the ends of Matthew's gospel, and Jesus says, I sat daily with you in the temple teaching. And so Jesus is there, and you can imagine crowd, you can imagine an area twice the size of this auditorium. There's, there's crowds, there's lots of people there. He sits down, he, and he's beginning to teach. He's going to proclaim the word of God and, and share truth with these people. And it's important to understand that Jesus is in a seated position because Jesus is in the traditional rabbinic teaching position. 
And that's important because Jesus is going to be challenged as a rabbi in an encounter that would soon follow. We see the setting, but then we also see the disruption this morning. Look at verse number three. three. And the scribes and the Pharisees brought unto him a woman taken in adultery. And we're told when they had set her in the midst. Now, I want you to imagine this. I want you to imagine we're in an area twice the size of this auditorium. Imagine Pastor Chapel is preaching. It's Sunday night. Everyone, you're paying attention because you're supposed to be paying attention in church. And I want you to imagine Pastor is halfway through the middle of the sermon. He's preaching. He's getting revved up. Everything is going great. And then someone bursts through the back doors of the auditorium, maybe a group of five or six people, and they bring a woman during the middle of the service, down the aisle, up to the front, and in front of everybody, and says, Pastor Chapel, this woman was taken in the very, she was caught committing adultery. What are you going to do about it? Can you imagine? Like, straight up, can you imagine what that would be like? If something, that would be a moment that you would never forget. That would be ingrained into your head. That would be a story you would tell your kids, and your kids' kids, and their kids' kids forever and ever and ever. And the auditorium would just be like, whoa, whoa, what's going to happen? It was an unbelievable disruption to Jesus as he's in the middle of teaching. As he's in the middle of teaching. And we're told that they set her in the midst. They put her, you might imagine, up in the front right next to Jesus in the midst of the people. And you can imagine her exposed, ashamed, humiliated. And what we discover is that this disruption was done for the purpose of accomplishing a trap that they were laying for Jesus. We see this in verse number four. They say unto him, so they, so they walk her, they, they bring her down, you know, this huge you know, commotion, disruption. They say unto him, Master, this woman was taken in an adultery the very act. She was caught engaging in the act. There is no doubt that she is guilty. Then look at verse number five. Now Moses in the, in the law commanded us that such should be stoned. Now, it's true, the seventh commandment forbids adultery. And Leviticus 20, verse 10, prescribes the death penalty for those who committed under the Old Testament law. And there were certain specific cases in which stoning was the prescribed method by the Scripture to be used in carrying out that death penalty, as in Deuteronomy 22, verses 21 through 24. So there's truth to what they're saying here. And they say, Moses in the law commanded, Moses says, the Bible says, this woman should be put to death. But what do you say? But what do you say? Now, I don't know about you, but imagining this and imagining that you're there, and this is occurring, there's a couple of questions that come to mind. First off, where's the man? Adultery is a two-party offense. And if this woman had been caught in the act then those who caught her surely would have seen him too. Why, why hadn't they apprehended the man and bought him before Jesus as well? And then secondly, is if justice is what they wanted, then why would they even bring this woman to Jesus in the first place? Why not try her in their own courts? Why not bring her before the Sanhedrin? It makes no sense. And yet what we find is that the answer to both of those questions, why is, there no, why is there no man and why are they bringing her before Jesus in the first place, the answer is found in verse 6. This they said, tempting him, that they, might, that they might have to accuse him. Why was there no man present? Why had they tried her in their own courts? The answer is simple. They weren't concerned with justice. They wanted to trap Jesus. 
The situation had nothing to do with that woman. It had everything to do with Jesus. They wanted to put him in a lose-lose situation where there was door one and there was door two, and he had to choose one of those two doors. And regardless of which door he chose, he lost. There was no right answer. And by the way, friend, that's exactly what we see here. He's in the middle of a trap. Because behind door one over here, if he objected to stoning her as the law prescribed, he would be guilty of opposing Moses and the law. This would discredit his claim to be the Messiah and, and, and undercut his legitimacy as a teaching rabbi in the eyes of many. Door number one is a losing proposition. And then there's door number two. On the other hand, if he agreed with her accusers that she should be stoned, this very well might be put him at odds with the Romans. Because if you remember, even in the execution of Jesus, whose permission do they have to get before they put him to death? The Romans. The Jews didn't have the right of capital punishment in the first century. And if Jesus were to insist on the execution of this woman, it very well could have been reported to the Romans as an act of instigation and defiance of Roman authority by one who claimed to be a king. And his reputation of compassion towards sinners would have been destroyed. The dramatic scene in the courtyard had reached its climax. The woman, with her sin publicly exposed, was humiliated. She was terrified. She was in danger of being stoned. The scribes and Pharisees were smug, thinking they had caught Jesus in an impossible dilemma. The crowd was hushed, watching intently to see how Jesus would react. You just imagine. I mean, imagine this happens. Imagine it's in a service. And, and, and they bring this woman down to the front of the auditorium. Like, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. The Bible says she should be killed. What do you say? And you can just imagine just whew, silence. Everyone's like watching. What's going to happen? This is crazy. What's he going to say? You say, well, well, pastor, what did he say? And, this is, this, is, and this, is, this is the crazy part, too. You know what he said? He didn't say a thing. Look at his response. It says, but Jesus stooped down and with his finger wrote on the ground as though he heard them not. You imagine this major disruption, this trap being set before him. The, 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 the people are silent. It is hushed. They are waiting in anticipation for how Jesus is going to respond to this incredible disruption. And you know what Jesus does? Doesn't say a thing. He kneels down and he begins to write on the ground. Now it's it's been assumed that Jesus wrote in the soil or the sand. And indeed, the word that's translated as ground here, it would seem to indicate so. But this event took place in the temple complex, it likely, likely took place in the courtyard I mentioned earlier. And most, if not all, of the temple had paving stones. It was paved. And so it's possible that Jesus wrote invisibly on the ground, which would have made what he was doing even more mysterious. You say, well, pastor, what did he write? That's the million-dollar question, isn't it? Like, that's the whole reason you came to Bible college, was that so some guest preacher would come in here and tell you what Jesus wrote on the ground in John chapter 8. And I am excited to announce to you that I am going to answer that question for you this morning. So buckle your seats and get ready, because your biggest question of the Bible is going to be revealed today. You say, Pastor, what did he write? It's not important. Sorry, didn't mean to spoil that there for you. 
If it were important, John certainly would have told us what he wrote. For John, what's important is not what he wrote on the ground, but that he wrote on the ground. Now, Jesus, of course, had taken his seat as a teaching rabbi, but Jesus was more than just a teacher of the law. Friend, Jesus was the giver of the law. When God first gave Israel the law on Sinai, how did he do it? He wrote on tablets of stone with his what? With his finger. Did you know that prior to Jesus, God is the only one described in the Bible as writing with his finger? See, thus Jesus is not just pictured here as a teacher of the law, but its author. If he were no more than a mere rabbi, he could do no more than agree with the Mosaic prescription for judgment. But if he were the law's giver, if he were the law's giver, he could do for that woman what he had done for the entire nation at Sinai when they had committed adultery, spiritual adultery, with the golden calf as Moses was up on the Temple Mount, he could forgive. He could forgive. And you just imagine, as Jesus is down on the ground, so there's this big disruption, this commotion. They come down, they're forcing his hand. Jesus, the Bible says that this woman should be stoned. What do you say? They've got him in a lose-lose situation. There's no right option. And what does he do? He just he gets down on the ground. And he just starts writing. Now, I just want you to imagine with me for a second how incredibly awkward this would have been. The silence. Like, can you imagine? Like, there's these guys. There's this woman. There's all these people. They're, they're, Jesus, what do you say? And he doesn't say anything. He just kneels down. And he starts writing on the ground. The, the silence of that moment would have been deafening. And in fact, the awkwardness of that silence is so incredible that look what happens. It says they continued asking him, right? So Jesus stoops down. He doesn't answer their question. And you just imagine, I don't know how long that silence would have been. Maybe it's 10 seconds. Maybe it's 15 seconds. Maybe it's 30 seconds with him just writing on the ground. But it is so, it is so much... To the point that the people that brought this, what do they start? They start looking at each other like, well, come on, Jesus, what do you say? What do you say? What do you? They break the silence and they continue to ask him, what do you say, Jesus? What do you say? They pressed him. What does he do? We're told he lifted himself up. He stood up and he said unto them, he that was without sin among you. And, and I believe the, the idea here is he that is without this type of sin or he that is free from the sin of impurity. Let him first cast a stone at her. And I want you to remember that in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, which would have been given prior to this, Jesus had claimed that God's standard for adultery was much higher than people would have thought. He claimed that adultery was not just a matter of deed, but of desire. Matthew 5, 27 and 28, He that lusteth after a woman in his heart hath committed, with his eyes hath committed adultery with her already in his heart. And so the scribes and the Pharisees are here, and they are crying, guilty, deserving of death regarding this woman. And Jesus' reply, in essence, was... Are you not as well? If you're going to execute this woman, you better be morally flawless enough to justify such an extreme action. And his reply, he that is about the uh, sin, let him first cast a stone. You know what it is? They gave him door one, and they gave him door two. And you know what Jesus chose? Door number three. Door number three, as he was so adept at doing. And man, his reply here, don't miss it. It is simple but it is incredibly profound. You see, 
His reply upheld the law. He did not deny the woman's guilt. And in fact, he broadened the law's power by exposing the sins of her accusers. It wasn't just her that was guilty, they were as well. It also avoided the charge of instigating an execution in violation of Roman authority. Since the Lord put the responsibility back on the accusers, if they were the ones that threw that stone, they would be the ones that might drive the ire of the Romans. And it mercifully spared the woman from being stoned for her sin. See, Jesus' masterful answer here neither minimized the woman's guilt nor denied the law's sanctity, but it cut the ground out from under the scribes and Pharisees by revealing that they were unfit to be her judges and executioners. And so he's down on the ground. They keep pressing him. He stands up. He says, He that is without sin among you, let him first cast a stone at her. And then you know what he does? He just kneels back down. Doesn't say another word. Look at verse number 8. And again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground the second time. That's all he says in verse number 8. And so we've seen the response, and then we see the resolution of this story. Look at verse number 9. And they which heard it, in reference to the accusers, being convicted by their own conscience. And, And we don't know exactly what that means. Perhaps they were guilty of adultery themselves. At the very least, they certainly would have been guilty of lust. Perhaps they felt the weight of the moral standard they would be held to in killing this woman with their own hands. Certainly they knew the legal ramifications of taking someone's life without the permission of the Romans. And what we find is that Jesus has now flipped the script on them. He's no longer in the lose-lose situation. Now they are the ones in the lose-lose situation. And we're told they went out one by one, beginning at the eldest, even unto the last. And and, and what's... important about what it says here, what's interesting is this. It tells us they went out one by one, which tells us this. There was some time that passed there. Once again, like, and you just imagine the awkwardness of that silence. He says, he that is without sin among you, let him first cast a stone at her. He gets down, he starts writing on the ground, and, and, and just, and you just imagine being one of the scribes and Pharisees, and you're, you're down here, and you're, you're like, well, what do we do now? What do we do now? One by one, slowly, those accusers, they exit stage left. They leave. And the quietness and the silence and the shame of the situation they had put themselves into. And we're told that Jesus was left alone and the woman standing in the midst. Now, the crowd would have still been there. But there at the, at the front, in that little circle, there would have been just Jesus and the woman And though it might have seemed natural for her to slip away as well, for some reason she didn't. She just stayed there. And we're told in verse number 10, when Jesus had lifted up himself, when he stood up after who knows how long, and saw none but the woman, he realizes the accusers are all left. He said unto her, Woman, where are thine accusers? Hath no man condemned thee? And what's incredible is this. Do you understand this is the first time anyone has addressed that woman in the entire story? It's here in this verse. He talks to her. He speaks to her. He says, where are the men that accused you? Has no one condemned you? Did nobody throw a stone at you? Verse 11. She said, no man, Lord. No no one's condemned me, sir. And, And I love the response that Jesus gives here. He says this. Neither do I condemn thee. Exercising his divine power to forgive, Jesus does just that. 
And in the truest sense, Jesus was the one she sinned against. His exercise of forgiveness reminds us of what John told us earlier in John chapter 3, verse 17. For God sent not his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. Christ didn't come to condemn the world. He came to save it. And although this woman's sin would be punished by death, it wouldn't be by her death. It would be by his. Though perfectly sinless himself, Jesus, six months later from this moment, would die on a cross for her sin, for your sin, for my sin, for the sin of the world. Friend, there is punishment for sin. There is condemnation for sin. There is death for sin. But it is only for those who reject Christ's death on their behalf and the forgiveness that it offers. Either you will accept by faith Christ's death on your behalf, or you will suffer spiritual death in hell for eternity as you pay for your own sins. Jesus offers this woman forgiveness, but he doesn't just offer her forgiveness. He calls her to a transformed lifestyle. Look what he says. He says, neither do I condemn thee. Go and sin no more. And specifically, what he's, I believe he's saying here is go and don't sin in this specific way anymore. And yet in a general sense, he's really calling her to a transformed life. And friend, the only right response to God's grace and forgiveness in our lives is holy, righteous living. I, I read an article a little while back about a new church that's being started, or that was, that, that was started over in uh, San Diego. And it, it was remarkable to me, the, the, the pastors, and so it's actually, it's a, it's a husband and wife of the pastors, so they're off on the wrong foot already with that. But the wife is an active adult entertainer. Not, not, not former, active adult entertainer. And you know what the tagline for the church is? A church for sinners by sinners. And can I tell you something, friend? That is garbage. And that is heretical. And that is not New Testament Christianity. God offers grace. And God offers forgiveness. And he offers it to us freely through Christ and what he did for us on the cross. But Christ calls us to a transformed lifestyle. He calls us out of the junk that enslaved us, the sin that enslaved us, the death that held us captive. Paul talks about this concern in Romans 6, 1 and 2. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid! How shall we that are dead to sin continue any longer therein? God, Jesus, offers this woman radical, incredible, gracious forgiveness. But he calls her to a transformed lifestyle, not in order to earn that forgiveness, but because of that forgiveness and the grace she had received in her own life. And then verse number 12. We'll end here. Then spake Jesus again unto them, the crowd, saying, I am the light of the world. He that followeth me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. We've got a picture of the courtyard um, there in the, in the temple area. And we don't know exactly where they might have been or perhaps would have been in, in the courtyard there at the temple. But you might imagine as this woman leaves, heads off into the distance, she likely would have exited out the eastern entrance, the eastern gate out of the courtyard. And if you recall, the setting for this, what is happening here is early, early, early morning. And you might imagine as this woman is heading off into the distance, as she heads off towards that eastern gate, you might see the sun rising over the, over the top of the temple complex there. 
And as this woman is heading off into the distance, and as that sun is rising, it is against that backdrop that Jesus says, I am the light of the world. He that followeth me, he that followeth me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of light. Here, against the backdrop of that sun, Jesus is able to claim for the first time a title that is among the greatest he bears. Whatever the sun is to natural earth, the source of light and warmth and life, he is to the world of mankind. He is, in fact, the light of the world. And if any man or woman, such as the one who had just been there, who likely is walking off in the distance, perhaps, care to follow the path he could reveal to them, the sins of the night need no longer be their experience, but instead, each day, they could fully enjoy the illuminating light of life. I am the light of the world, he says, perhaps even motioning to the sunrise. He that followeth me like that woman shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. Friend, I don't know which character in this story resonates with you, but there's a lesson for each of them. Perhaps you were like the Pharisees and scribes. You are adept at pointing out the faults in others, but you are totally oblivious to the shortcomings in your own life. The tendency to always see the worst in other people is not a gift of discernment, it is a sin habit in your life. You need to repent to get your own self right before you attempt to, attempt to help, not condemn others. May we have the same attitude towards sinners as Jesus, who came not to condemn, but to save them, to save them. Perhaps you're like the woman. Perhaps you're a newer Christian. You've been so caught up in sin in the world, and what you really need is Jesus. Embrace him. Accept by faith the forgiveness he offers through his death in your place. Turn from the sin he died to save you from. Embrace the new identity you have in him. You are no longer a captive of the night. You are a child of the light. Perhaps you're like the crowd. And just imagine being there and watching. And we kind of are able to do that and kind of get a glimpse into what happened there and imagine it in our mind. Perhaps you're, you're, you're like the crowd that watched this whole thing happen. They saw God's forgiveness firsthand. Just as we, as we have seen it today. May seeing God's forgiveness so freely given inspire us to do the same with others. May we be grace givers, not grudge holders in our relationships with others. May we treat others as Jesus treated that woman. And may we treat others as Jesus has treated us.